Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we're going to hear more about the popular uprisings that are exploding in Egypt, Tunisia, and perhaps beyond with Mustafa Henaway, an Egyptian-Canadian residing in Montreal. And we'll also hear on more about the Harp- Stephen Harper's five years in power with columnist and Canadian Dimension contributor Marie Dobbin. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 3rd, 2011. Over the past seven days, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians have protested in the streets of Cairo, Alexandria, Suez, and other cities in the largest protests Egypt has seen in decades. An estimated 150 protesters have been killed and thousands have been injured over the past week. On Sunday, opposition leader Mohamed el-Baradai joined protesters in Tahrir Square in Cairo. The former head of the UN International Atomic Energy Agency called for Mubarak's ouster. In response to the massive street protests, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak has sworn in a new cabinet and named former Air Force Commander Ahmed Shafiq to be Prime Minister and Omar Suleiman to be Vice President, a position that has been unfilled for three decades. Suleiman is Egypt's former intelligence chief. He has close ties to Washington and played a key role in the U.S. extraordinary rendition program. Protesters are rejecting these measures as far too little and too late. Finance Minister Jim Flaherty says opposition parties are creating dangerous uncertainty for Canadian businesses by calling for planned corporate tax cuts to be scrapped in the next federal budget. The Liberals and New Democrats have demanded Flaherty roll back the corporate tax rates to 2010 levels of 18%. Canada's federal corporate rate dropped to 16.5% on January 1st and is scheduled to fall to 15% next year. The opposition wants the government to cancel the cuts, arguing that more jobs would be created if the money generated from the rolling back of rates was spent on education, help for low-income Canadians and seniors. The Haitian government says it is ready to issue former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide with a passport, opening the way for his possible return. Mr. Aristide was ousted seven years ago and has been living in exile. The news comes at a critical time with the final results of the disputed first round of the presidential election due on Wednesday. He would be the second ousted president to return after the surprise arrival two weeks ago of Jean-Claude Duvalier. Mr. Aristide already announced his desire to return to Haiti a year ago, shortly after the devastating earthquake which left much of the country destroyed. At the time, he said he wanted to return to help his countrymen recover from the quake. Anonymous, the hacktivist collective behind a series of pro-WikiLeaks cyber attacks, has declared war on the British government following the arrest of five of its members in the UK. In a statement posted online, The organization urged supporters to hit government websites with distributed denial-of-service attacks, which are a way of flooding a target website with so many requests for information that it is forced to shut down. It has been judged serious enough for GovCert UK, the information security agency, to warn government websites to take precautions. 
Barack Obama's health care reform suffered a blow when a federal judge ruled the entire reform package unconstitutional. A federal judge in Florida agreed with a coalition of 26 states from across the U.S. that the provision in the law to oblige individuals to buy health insurance was in breach of their personal rights. Judge Roger Vinson said that the objection to this specific part of the legislation had an impact on all the other reforms, and so he found against the whole law. The ruling is unlikely to have an immediate effect on the prospects of health reform in the country, not least because this provision does not come into effect until 2012 in any case. But the judge's decision is the most severe setback for Obama over one of the signature measures of his first two years in the White House. The amount of video or data that can be streamed or downloaded by some Internet customers under their current price plans is being cut almost 90% following a recent CRTC decision. Starting March 1st, customers who subscribe to 5 megabits per second Internet service with Tech Savvy will only be able to use 25 gigabytes per month in Ontario and 60 gigabytes per month in Quebec instead of 200 gigabytes per month. If they exceed the new caps, they will have to pay hefty surcharges. Similar notifications have been going out to thousands of customers of other Internet service providers. It could be more than a year before Alex Hundert, one of the alleged ringleaders of last June's G20 protests in Toronto, goes to trial. Hundert made a brief appearance in court early this week and is due to return on September 12th for a pre-trial hearing. But Hundert, who is charged with conspiracy, says he doesn't expect the trial to begin until the fall of 2012. He was initially arrested in a house raid in June, was released on bail, and then re-arrested for breach of recognizance in September. The pressure group Human Rights Watch has called on the government of Honduras to investigate the murders of six transgender women. The women were killed over the past two months. The government has condemned the killings, but Human Rights Watch says it is failing to prosecute attacks on transgender people. Murder rates in Honduras are the highest in Central America and are ten times higher than those in the U.S. The director of the lesbian campaign group Red Lesbica says the murders have shaken the entire lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community in Honduras. The United Nations has officially condemned what it described as deplorable human rights practices in Iran, North Korea, and Myanmar. The UN General Assembly Committee passed resolutions on January 27th, accusing the three countries of abuses. The resolution against Iran was backed by 80 nations, while the one against Myanmar received 96 votes, and the one against North Korea was supported by 100 countries. The committee also said Myanmar's first elections in 20 years, held earlier this month, were neither free nor fair. A new report released on Friday claims that South Africa would need to spend as much as 102 billion U.S. dollars over the next 20 years in order to reduce the number of new HIV infections. The Center for Economic Governance and AIDS in Africa and the Results for Development Institute published, published a report arguing that the country could more than have its current level of new HIV infections with the right policies. With increased access to treatment and the implementation of prevention plans, South Africa's new HIV infection rates could fall below 200,000 a year by 2020, according to the report. The United Nations estimates that there are 5.7 million people infected with HIV in South Africa, more than anywhere else in the world. Those were the alert headlines for the week of February 3, 2011.
Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of February 3rd, 2011. The French government is trying to extradite Hassan Diab to France to be tried for his alleged involvement in crimes committed in 1980. The case against him relies on information not accepted as evidence in a Canadian court and an argument full of omissions and misrepresentations. Diab is yet another in the growing list of Canadians who are guilty until proven innocent. Come out to the PSAC building at 233 Gilmore in Ottawa on February 7th to learn more about this case. Speakers include Diab's wife, Rania Tafali, Matthew Behrens, the coordinator of the campaign to stop secret trials, and Peter Gose, professor at Carleton University. The discussion begins at 7 o'clock p.m. A fundraiser for Israeli Apartheid Week in Winnipeg is happening at the Mondragon on February 10th. The fundraiser will feature the special guests, Technical Children and the Resisting Beef, Selena's and Adam CZ. Israeli Apartheid Week is March 14th to 18th. In Toronto, Rob Ford's Budget Committee is working out the details of the opening round of his attack on poor and working people in the city. The Ontario Coalition Against Poverty is urging people to come out to City Hall on February 10th for a people's delegation at the final meeting of the Budget Committee. Bring your anger and bring your demands. Meet at City Hall at 10 o'clock a.m. The Keep Resisters in Canada campaign needs your help in building the campaign to stop the deportation of U.S. war resisters seeking refuge in Canada from unjust wars. The Resisters campaign is hosting a fundraising dinner on February 12th at 411 Cumberland Avenue in Winnipeg. Speakers include war resister Joshua Key. The dinner will be a vegetarian meal prepared by the Solidarity Committee for Ethiopian Political Prisoners. Tickets are $20 and are available by phoning 204 792-3371. Spogme Aksir, spokesperson for Afghans for Peace, has just returned from Afghanistan and will be in Toronto to talk about the realities facing Afghan people under the NATO occupation. Other speakers include former NDP MP Peggy Nash. The event will be held at the Steelworkers Hall on February 10th at 6.30 and will also include music, dance performances, and a dinner. Admission is on a sliding scale of $10 to $25. Journalist and host of Democracy Now! Amy Goodman will be in Edmonton on February 26th to celebrate the 14th anniversary of her show and the launch of her book Breaking the Sound Barrier. She will speak on the role of independent media in promoting social justice. This free talk begins at 7 o'clock p.m. and will be held at the University of Alberta. That's all for Around the Left in 7 Days for the week of February 3rd, 2011. The world is watching with bated breath the latest developments in Egypt. By the time this interview goes to air, the autocratic Mubarak regime may have fallen following the million-person march and demonstrations happening this week. Just prior to the uprising in Egypt, we witnessed the uprising against another autocratic Arab regime, the Ben Ali government in Tunisia. To help us sort through these momentous events, Alert has contacted Mustafa Henaway, he is an Egyptian-Canadian residing in Montreal. He is a member of the Tadaman Collective, standing in solidarity with the Palestinians in the Middle East. 
and he is also with the Montreal's Workers Immigrant Center. So welcome to Alert, Mustafa. Uh, thank you for having me, Michael, on Alert. Uh, this week, uh, and I guess it's there's a lot, quite a lot happening in the Middle East uh, maybe you right should, now. Maybe you should uh, bring us up to date. What are the as we record this now? What what are the latest developments? Uh, I mean, the latest developments is today uh, is currently Mubarak just gave a speech, just following what was called as the Million Persons March uh, in Egypt as sort of a national day of action to call for an end to Mubarak's 31 rule uh, in Egypt. And uh, more than that, I mean, it was, you know, estimates of 2 million people in Cairo, half a million in Mansoura. And what that means in Mansoura, half a million, it's a population of 1.1 million. So we're talking about every other person in that city was out on the streets. So uh, we're talking about massive, massive demonstrations across Egypt today, but also uh, uh, Mubarak's speech seems to show that uh, he's still trying to test the will of the Egyptian people. He has not called for his own resignation yet and only claimed that he won't be returning for another presidential term. Uh, and that was what, was this, what his uh, remarks uh, just about an hour ago uh, live on Egyptian state television. Okay, now the, you're talking about what it sounds, if I'm understanding you correctly, about 50% of the population has risen up in these demonstrations, which uh, is pretty significant. Uh, is this really a, a question of, of not if, but when Mubarak is actually forced out of power? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it really truly is a question of when. I mean, uh, I mean the, what was seemed impossible... Uh, less than, you know, just above a week ago uh, as sort of a question of if uh, now sort of these demonstrations over the past week is really showing a question of when and sort of the cracks within uh, Mubarak's power uh, within Egypt. I mean, there are huge splits within the ruling National Democratic Party, uh, which he is the chair of. Uh, his family has left Egypt. Uh, you have a military that's currently not doing anything, and lots of people are wondering, well, why aren't they doing anything? It's because they're trying to maintain legitimacy as a national entity uh, to see who will come into power uh, post-Mubarak. You also have, at the same time, uh, uh, I mean, the signs are all leading to when. You mean you have uh, open pressure from the U.S.? I mean, that's still mixed, and we can go into sort of the U.S.'s role within Egypt uh, in terms of asking Mubarak not to run again. So it's very clear that this, uh, it, it's become a real question of when, and the, and the, and the one thing uh, is the will of the Egyptian people. They have not let go. Uh, the fear has been completely broken, and uh, Egyptians are staying resolved, and actually you have more and more and more people coming out onto the streets. So, I mean, this what was a movement of thousands is becoming a movement of millions within Egypt okay, and so even all around the world. Mustafa, could you maybe give us some um, a bit of a of a background or a reminder? I mean, this Mubarak has been in power for a very long time. What exactly was it that sparked this uh, th this huge uh, revolution? If I mean, I think that's pretty clear what we're talking about here. What 
what are the factors involved that uh, was able to galvanize so many people behind uh, this movement to, to force him out? Well, I mean, I think there, there are two things at play. And I mean, I, I, I mean, one, you have to look at this sort of this, this current revolution in sort of a context because it just didn't begin this week. And so Tunisia was absolutely a spark. Uh, what took place in Tunisia was, was a huge spark to really show that the impossible was possible. But this, this begins sort of uh, five years ago. Uh, I mean, the frustrations of Egyptians have always been mounting. You know, Egypt's been uh, one party state rule uh, since the Egyptian Revolution in 1952. You have stagnating economic conditions under Mubarak, sort of in the opening up of the Egyptian economy. Uh, in the 90s, you have a neoliberal agenda that has, was unsurmounted privatization of water, privatization of electricity, uh, privatization of gas. Um, you have uh, a police state sort of emerging at the same time to maintain and enforce such policies. And sort of, so really the anger that was against the Egyptian regime uh, had always been sort of mounting. Uh, and sort of also since 1981, Egyptians have been living under what's called emergency laws. The emergency laws were put in place, the assassination of the former president Anwar Sadat, and put in place martial law within Egypt since 1981. So we're talking about 30 years of martial law within Egypt and sort of what Human Rights Watch calls a police state part. You have these, these sort of this mounting anger and mounting repression. And at the same time, in 2005, sort of under the Bush rhetoric or the Bush doctrine of sort of democracy within the Middle East actually puts some pressure from above to sort of open up the society, to allow uh, some degrees of freedom of press and sort of freedom of, uh, of voicing opposition. So within that, what you begin to see is sort of a movement for democratic reform and for an ending of the security laws uh, in 2005-2006 under the umbrella of the movement called Kifaya or Enough. I mean, also at the same time in 2006, you have a massive groundswell of a labor movement, really of the working poor within industrial cities such as Mahalla, which is a textile industry uh, city uh, in Egypt uh, because of the privatization of the textile industry and the calling for a raise of the minimum wage that led to, to strikes in 2008. Uh, so you have these movements beginning to sort of challenge pockets, uh, but not on a national scale as what happened in, in you know J January 25th, and that mainly was because of what was happening, what took place in Tunisia, really showed that the impossible is possible, that a popular Arab revolution was actually possible, and that authoritarian dictatorships could be toppled. Mustafa, uh, could you mention uh, also the role of uh, of students? I mean, you mentioned unions, uh, the, the other uh, <coughs> factions of of the public, if you will, students, uh, I Islamic movements. Uh, wh where do they factor into this? Uh, well, this I popular mean, the, in terms of the students and the youth, um, I mean, this is. I mean, what happened in January was really youth led. I mean, you have a society. I mean, it was spontaneous. I think that's clear, and it has to be made clear. There were factors that sort of led to this movement, but the spark was that there was an anger from a, an unorganized sort of youth 
uh, within Egyptian society, and one that was beginning to feel real pressures. Um, you could, 42% of the Egyptian population live under poverty. So, and the median age in Egypt is 24. So an overwhelmingly young population, a young population that had no hope, had extreme frustrations, you know, in a society where it's traditional, uh, you know, young Egyptians couldn't afford to get married because they didn't have the money, they didn't have the means to actually get, uh, you know, to be able to, to buy homes, to be able to get married, and uh, the lack of employment. So all of these factors really began to sort of swell, and so, on, I mean, this really was a youth-led uh, movement, and then uh, in terms of the Islamic factor, in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is a movement that existed in Egypt since, you know, the 20s and 30s and was banned since 1952, really stayed away from this movement. They've always been part of the political opposition, the massive organization, the largest organ- opposition grouping within Egypt, but sort of stayed away from the political arena. They entered the political arena during the parliamentary elections this past November, but were crushed. Its leadership had been arrested and then they joined the rest of the opposition to call for a boycott. But January 25th, they'd actually stayed away from the demonstration and then discouraged members. On Friday, January 28th, the next round, or sort of the second day of anger, uh, began to participate. And, you know, as of Sunday, called, you know, for its membership to solely support uh, this movement and to go behind the political opposition calling for an end to Mubarak's regime and for real democracy okay. in, in, in Egypt. Well, you mentioned that uh, that you, you just paired the two together. You talked about the end of Mubarak's uh, rule and uh, the, the, the quest for democracy. Uh, I mean, in terms of the, the anger that's pushed for the end of Mubarak's rule, I mean, can we realistically expect that this is going to lead to true democracy or are we going to end up with uh, another leader that's maybe not quite as uh, offensive? Well, I mean, I think, th- I mean, it's, it's hard to speculate. I mean, I mean the, there's two factors, too, is that Egypt doesn't exist within a vacuum. I mean, Egypt is, uh, U.S. is, I mean, this is becoming more and more clear. I mean, the, Egypt is sort of a linchpin within the Middle East and within the Arab world and sort of is a, a balancing act of U.S. power within the region uh, and in terms of U.S. policy in the region, but U.S. policy vis-a-vis Israel. Uh, I mean, it is the land border next to Gaza uh, and the U.S. and Israel, extremely frightened of a post-Mubarak regime. So many people are, you know, speculating. Well, well, why don't putting, we? Why don't you address that point then? I mean, what are the uh, the stakes for the United States and Israel if we end up with a truly democratic Egypt, a government of the people, by the people? for the people who have been threatened by weapons made in the USA, that, that recognizes the United States as a, uh, an ally of Mubarak, or at least formerly? I mean, if, if for there to be sort of a, a, a real democracy within Egypt, uh, I mean, I think you're going to have one that doesn't actually sympathize with, with Israeli policy towards uh, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, in terms of Israeli apartheid, I think you'll have uh, an Egyptian government that would do the just thing, that would not allow the continued siege of the Gaza Strip of 1.5 million Palestinians, uh, two-thirds of those refugees uh, displaced in 1948. I think you would have uh, an Egyptian government 
that would support the 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 Palestinian cause for for liberation and justice and wouldn't uh, be so cooperative in terms of Israeli policy. I mean, I mean, Egypt built a wall this past January, which was 20 meters underground uh, to stop the only lifeline that Palestinians in Gaza had in terms of food, in terms of uh, uh, basic medicine, in terms of construction material through the tunnels between Rafah and Egypt. Uh, and that wall was built primarily by the United States, engineered by the United States Army, uh, and supported by Israel. Now, Israel uh, is, uh, well, I, I know that recently Israel has uh, been standing in, in defense of the Mubarak regime. Could you comment on uh, the, the role of Israel-Palestine uh, in the uprising and what changes could, could come should the, uh, the 1979 Egypt-Israel peace agreement be broken? I mean, I think we'll have a balancing act. I mean, I think we'll have a balance of power truly shift because, uh, I mean, Israel has truly relied on on sort of Palestinians not being able to sort of be part of a larger pan-Arab movement uh, in terms of justice and in terms of normalization of Israel. Uh, Egypt's been key in terms of Israel. Egypt's been key in terms of the normalization of Israel within the broader Middle East. And the U.S.'s goals, part of its foreign policy and economic policy in particular, is how do we begin to normalize Israel? Because if you normalize Israel as a state, then you begin to normalize Israeli apartheid and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Okay. Uh, so any attempt uh, to, to do that or to advance that within U.S. or Israeli policy is central because the normalization of the Israeli state sort of make sure that its continued existence as an apartheid state, as a colonial settler state, continues safely and securely and can continue to focus on the internal issues of, of maintaining an apartheid state okay. uh, vis-a-vis indigenous Palestinian population. So one example of that was the Middle East Free Trade Agreement. Uh, it's not signed yet. It was a proposal by the Bush regime in 2003 um, after victory was declared by the Bush regime in Iraq uh, to sort of create a, a single, uh, something like the Free State of Americas, and sort of its three sort of pillars was one, normalization with Israel, uh, and an end to the Arab boycott of, by Arab states of Israel, Okay, Mustafa, I'm wondering if I could just sort of stop you there, because I want to get into Tunisia as well, which is really the, the, what seemed to spark this latest uh, round of revolt. Three weeks ago, Tunisian President Ben Ali was swept from power after 23-year autocratic rule, and this followed a month-long wave of violent protests that began with demonstrations by unemployed graduate students that spread from town to town and escalated onto other issues. Tunisia, like Mustafa Mubarak's Egypt, had been regarded as an ally of the USA and as the poster child of a modern Arab country. So I guess what I want to ask you uh, again is, uh, you know, are, are we seeing the same factors that are, are playing into these revolts in terms of the uh, unrest with the, uh, among the population, uh, unemployment rate in Tunis of uh, 18% or higher? I mean... Could you maybe describe, are we talking the same forces in, in this uprising? I mean, I think we're talking about similar forces. I mean, there are differences, too, between Tunisia and Egypt in terms of the role its state plays, in terms of why maybe it'll be harder to get Mubarak out. But in terms of 
sort of uh, in terms of unemployment, in terms of sort of a frustrated uh, mass of swelling youth. I mean, it was very, very similar. Uh, the difference in Tunisia, I would say, is that there wasn't the same sort of freedoms of press and sort of there was even less sort of freedom under uh, Ben Ali's rule than there was under the last five years of of Mubarak um, in terms of also the, the other forces um, in terms of an authoritarian rule trying to sort of, you know, to uh, blame the sort of Islamic forces as being sort of to its internal security policy and the repression that goes on, uh, very similar uh, that you know the banning of the Nahna party uh, within Tunisia, whose leader just recently uh, returned. Uh, the same argument was used against the Brotherhood uh, to maintain a, a massive security state. Um, well, speaking know, of uh, the, the the security state, it seems as if one of the main tools that we keep hearing about that undermines that is uh, the social networking uh, tools, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and the rest. I mean, what what is your estimation of these social media uh, in terms of the uh, their their being the key uh, to to these uprisings? Well, I mean, I think they're key in terms of a certain layer within the society. Right, you you still have to understand. I mean, the poorest of the poor within Egyptian society don't have access to even to telephones. Uh, live in slums, uh, live within the countryside, so do not have access. So we're talking about a certain layer within Egyptian society, a younger layer, a more educated layer that have access. But it was key to to sort of to begin this, right? And I think it was key in two ways. It was key in to begin this uprising in the sense that they were able to get 90,000 people on Facebook to, you know, to endorse this action or to mobilize this action as well as Twitter, but also it's a lifeline outside, you know, that really makes this revolution sort of not just uh, a national revolution, but truly a pan-Arab revolution. Well, when we're talking about, uh, you know, revolutions, I mean, are these sorts of uprisings, uh, are are we seeing the... uh the, the first time that uh, Arab leaders are being brought down by popular revolt, and uh, also uh, looking into the future, uh, do we expect to see more of these states come down, like Yemen and Lebanon, uh, uh, a domino effect, if you will? What's your take on that? I mean, this is the. I mean, this is a first. I mean, this is new, and it's not new. I mean, it's new in the sense that I think that it's partyless. I think that's what makes it extremely new, uh, that it's completely organic, that it's completely grassroots. I mean, one, because these states have completely wiped out any organized political opposition. I mean, they've completely wiped out any organized left within these countries. I mean, within the 60s, I mean, you've seen massive revolts, uh, you know, in places like Jordan in 68, you almost have a revolution that brings down the royal family but was crushed severely, and the Palestinians bared the, the highest price for that 1968 revolution on what was called Black September, where thousands of Palestinians were massacred by the Jordanian army. I mean, you have a massive left uh, progressive movements in Lebanon in the late 60s and early 70s. So, But in terms of being able to actually challenge uh, in a, on a very grassroots mass level like this, this is historic and unprecedented. 
Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us, Mustafa. We look forward to seeing uh, how these events, these historic events, unfold in the coming uh, weeks. So um, thank you very much for joining us, Mustafa. Uh, thank you, and uh, I think, uh, you know, for your listeners, for people to stay up to date on what's taking place uh, in Egypt and Solidarity Actions, you know, they can always go to our website, uh, tadamon.ca, T-A-D-A-M-O-N.ca. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Mustafa Hinaway was just joining us. Uh, he's an Egyptian-Canadian residing in Montreal, an organizer with the BDS conference in Montreal and with the Workers Immigrant Center in Montreal. Stephen Harper has been the Prime Minister of Canada for five years now, and Canada may be headed towards another election sometime this summer that would see if this will be extended even further. If we take a look back over the past five years, how has he changed Canada? How would he change Canada if he were to form yet another minority government? To discuss these questions, Alert has brought back freelance writer and blogger Murray Dobbin. Welcome back to Alert, Murray. It's great Hi, to have you back once again. Sure. So has Stephen Harper changed Canada? And if so, can you, you know, elaborate on how or the ways in which Canada has changed under his leadership? Yeah, no, I think he has. I mean, he's certainly done his best, given that he has a minority government. He's, I think he's, I mean, I've often described him as the most dangerous prime minister Canada's ever had. I mean, he's a, probably the only prime minister that Canada's ever had who actually has contempt for his own country, which he used to express, you know, on a regular basis, you know, calling it a second-rate socialist country obsessed with with its health care system and, and um, constantly making denigrating comments about about Canada and, and what it became after the Second World War. So he's, <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any other country that has uh, an elected prime minister who who uh, is contemptuous of everything that the country stands for. I mean, you know, you, you certainly have politicians in different parties with different visions of the country. And certainly you saw Brian Mulroney and Paul Martin um, dismantle a, a lot of, of, of what had been built in the post-war period. But we've never had a prime minister who, I think, you know, given the chance, would dismantle um, virtually all social programs. And one of the interesting things is that you uh, that he he virtually never talks about, never talks about the things that actually matter to Canadians. He talks about defense. He talks about tax cuts for corporations. But he almost never talks about Medicare, education, child poverty, the environment, climate change. None of those things he ever talks about, and because he really does believe, as as uh, as most uh, fundamentalist free marketers believe, it, that the the role of government is essentially the military, you know, uh, the currency, um, uh, security apparatus, uh, and that's about it. So, uh, and so he's tried to he, he's tried to change the country in that direction um, uh, with a minority situation, which is not. Not easy. Can can you be specific about some of the things that have changed? I mean, if we look back to before he was in power. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that he's done is he's he. I mean, he's violated democracy in 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 many many ways. And I I did a series for Rabble, which I think you can still find on Rabble's uh, website. Um, uh, well, f- first of all, he used he used a very uh, unusual and uh, method for closing down Parliament, calling proroguing Parliament. He did that twice. Um, unfortunately, our our Governor General didn't have the courage to stand up to him and allowed that to happen when 
clearly she didn't have to and could have could have and should have ruled against it so closing down parliament when you're when you're facing a defeat in parliament uh is you know is it's just a clear violation of democratic principles um in terms of watchdog committees i mean things like the parliamentary budget office the rcmp uh complaints commission the military police complaints commission the canadian nuclear regulatory commission he has done everything in his power to to silence these organizations which are watchdog committees that are supposed to report to parliament but of course the government actually appoints the heads of these groups and, and in all of those instances um, uh, with the exception of the uh, parliamentary budget office whose budget was cut um, he just he he refused to reappoint the people in those positions because they were actually doing their jobs he has made access to information almost impossible uh, there was a study recently that showed Canada was the worst amongst um, uh, OECD countries in terms of access to information uh, he has imposed his own sort of ideological take on things. For example, Canada um, doesn't have the death penalty, hasn't had for decades. And as part of that policy, uh, we oppose, uh, we do everything we can to prevent Canadians from being executed in other countries um, in, in line with our view of the death penalty. And, and uh, uh, Harper has eliminated that. He no longer tries to intervene in foreign countries to have Canadians um, protected from the death penalty. Um, let's uh, let's look forward now for a few minutes. A Parliament's back in session this week with the possibility that the federal budget to be brought down sometime next month could be defeated. Mm-hmm. Should that happen, uh, we'd face an election this summer. What do you think are the chances that it will be defeated? I mean, the Liberals have already announced that they will oppose the planned reduction of corporate income taxes. What about the NDP and the Bloc? Well, uh, I think the bloc will will vote against it. The bloc has said that unless they got five million dollars in various, you know, uh, various programs uh, given to them by the by the conservatives, that they would vote against the budget. And clearly, the Harper isn't inclined to do that. Uh, so it really comes down to the NDP, and, uh, and it's it's still too difficult to say. I mean, I think that, that we're getting mixed messages from the finance critic uh, Thomas Mulcair and from Layton. Mulcair says it would be extremely unlikely that the NDP would support a budget that had the tax cuts in it. Layton has been a little more coy about that. So Harper might be able to <laughs> buy his way out of it by by um, increasing money for seniors and taking, you know, reducing the tax on, on heating oil, which I think are two very, very small items. And I I'd be really disappointed if the NDP supported the budget. Murray, are you hearing anything about the NDP, the Liberals, and the Greens working together to try and block the Tories or form a coalition government? What do you think of something like that? Well, I mean, I've always supported the idea of a coalition, and uh, and Leighton, I think, still still does. And I, I presume that Duceppe would still be willing to, you know, um, although not join the coalition formally, um, supported in terms of, of a number of, of, of um, sort of social democratic policies. The, the, the big barrier to a coalition these days is Michael Ignatieff, who, who is, I think, very right-wing uh, and uh, I think a bit delusional about the role of the Liberal Party still. It, it, he will never get a majority, and if he's lucky enough to get a minority, he has to have support, support from somewhere. So I think it's still possible that if the Liberals... Um, ended up with more seats than the Conservatives, that 
there there still could be a coalition or some sort of accord formed after the election, but it seems unlikely that Ignatieff would agree to talk about a coalition before the election. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Murray. As always, we appreciate your insights. Thanks, Ashley. Alert has been speaking with freelance writer and blogger Murray Dobbin about Harper's reign as the Prime Minister of Canada and the possibilities for a federal election this summer. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And this week, a completely different kind of approach to presenting songs. You know, those old, long, laborious ballads sometimes are really fantastic. You know, I think of the the verses, come and listen to my story, come and listen to my song. It's only 40 verses, and I I won't detain you long. On today's show, we're going to bring you a whole series of songs. Each one of them is less than a minute, but each one of them is complete. Each one of them is a completely written thought and song. And here to start is Utah Phillips. Praise boss when morning work bells chime. Praise him for bits of overtime. Praise him whose wars we love to fight. Praise him fatly chant parasite. Amen. Understand beauty and truth. Since no dentist can tell me what it's all about, I'll just contemplate truth till my teeth all fall out. Oh, tantric mantra, treetop tall. I won't you kindly turn your dharma down. Woo! My sweet ops, the mule in the mine. I drive her without any lines On the bumper I sit and I chew and I spit All over my sweetheart's behind Banker and boss hate the workers who stand Shoulder to shoulder in every land Though in they struggle our martyrs may fall Trotsky's Red Army will conquer them all, so fuckers, hold your ranks, keep sharp and steady, for freedom's cause, our pitted bright. the workers' motherland, the Soviet Union, get ready for the last fierce fight. Gene Harlow died the other day. 
These are the very words I heard her say. Jackalaka, 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 jackalaka. Jackalaka, 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 jackalaka. Gene Harlow died the other day. is hunted down as an enemy of mankind. The other is driven around to his club as fettered, wined, and dined. And they who curse the bum on the rods as the essence of all that's bad will greet the other with a winning smile and extend the hand so glad. The bum on the rods is a social flea who gets an occasional bite. The bum on the plush is a social leech blood-sucking day and night. The bum on the rods is a load so light that his weight we scarcely feel, but it takes the labor of dozens of folks to furnish the other a meal. As long as we sanction the bum on the plush, the other will always be there. But rid ourselves of the bum on the plush and the other will disappear. Then make an intelligent, organized kick. Get rid of the weights that crush. Don't worry about the bum on the rods. Get rid of the bum on the plush. Shalaki, shalaki, bookie, push out all the horns, all the ladies are coming to see ya. Shalaki, shalaki, bookie, put out all your horns, all the ladies are coming to see ya. All around to the butcher shop I go, I cannot stay very long, for if I do, my mother will say, I'm playing with the bite in the corner. E-I-O, my mora. E-I-O today, I give her a kick and away she runs, E-I-O today. One, two, three, me mother caught a flea, she put it in the tea pot and boiled a cup of tea. The flea jumped out, me mother gave a shout, and in came Johnny where she shot hanging out. My old dog likes his meat, pork chops are a special treat, my old dog and me. My old dog and me, two old bums, two jolly old bums, my old dog and me. Oh, the time won't get no better here. San Pedro are older than God and their beards tumble down to their tits with one single bump of their ponderous rump they can grind your poor pecker to bits so here's to the whore of San Pedro to that marvelous fucking machine 
If I had my way, you could see her today on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, I have led a good life full of peace and quiet. I shall have an old age full of rum and riot. I have been a good lad, careful and artistic. I shall have an old age coarse and anarchistic. Once I paid my taxes and followed every rule. Banker, boss, and bureaucrat thought me a willing tool. I voted Democratic and paid the church its due. Now all those swine will have to find some other chump to screw. Of interest, banks, and credit, insurance, tax, and rent. Of lawyers, agents, generals, and clerics, I repent. With this for corporations and scorn for those elected. Oh, I will be an old bum, loved but unrespected. drunk ale from the country of the young and weep because I know all things now I have been a hazel tree and they hung the pilot star and the crooked plough among my leaves in times out of mind I became a rush that horses thread I became a man a hater of the wind knowing one out of all things alone that his head may not lie on the breast, nor his lips on the hair of the woman that he loves until he dies. O oh, beast of the wilderness, bird of the air, must I endure your amorous cries? Here's a foreign song I learned in Utah. Ha! Hava Na Hava Na Gi Hava Na Gi Lo Hava Na Gi Lo Orlai Auxiliary is a good auxiliary. It's the best auxiliary that you ever did see. If you need an auxiliary, see the ladies' auxiliary. It's the ladies' auxiliary. Are you cold, forlorn, and hungry? Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of misery? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are your clothes all torn and tattered? Are you living in a shack? Would you have your troubles scattered? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are you almost split asunder? Loaded like a long-eared jack. Boob, why don't you buck like thunder? And dump the bosses off your back. All the agonies you suffer, you could end with one good whack. 
Stiffen up, you ornery duffer, and dump the bosses off your back. Bam, bam, bam. That was Utah Phillips finishing off his collection of songs just like he began, with a little bit of brashness. Back around 1973, I took a trip down into the American South. I was a young CBC reporter, and I had my stereo Nagra tape recorder with me, and I wandered around doing interviews with people and collecting songs and just having a really actually quite a good time. I was in Raleigh-Durham, and I, I was meeting with some of the, uh, and interviewing some of the leaders of the black organizations. I was quite interested in what the civil rights had brought by 1973. And one of the, one of the leaders told me, you ought to go see C.P. Ellis. And I said, well, who's C.P. Ellis? And he looked at me and he said, he's the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And I said, what's this about? He said he walked in here a couple months ago. And we kind of freaked out when he did, but he, but he said, I am a poor white man, and I've just discovered that my problems are the same as your problems. Let's form a coalition. C.P. Ellis led the Ku Klux Klan of Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, out of the United Clans of America. C.P. Ellis rejected racism in his life. C.P. Ellis became a union organizer. And very recently, C.P. Ellis passed away, much to the sadness of a lot of people. I talked to some old-time musicians from around there, and uh, he was a very respected fellow by the time he moved on. So today I'm going to play two songs. Both of them are black and both of them are white. And here for C.P. Ellis is Coal Miner's Blues.
I'm just a poor cold loader. I'm digging deep down in the mine. I'm just a poor cold loader. Digging deep down in the mine. With the heart I work for my woman. She treats me so unkind. I'm getting tired of working. Cause I believe I've got a hunch. I'm getting tired of working. Cause I believe I've got a hunch. But I have to go into those mines with cornbread in my life. Sometimes I call my woman, call her about five o'clock. Sometimes I call my woman, call her about five o'clock. I'm going down into the mine, severing that coal from the rock. Play it. Mm-hmm. I work from sun to sun. I'm talking about a hard-minded man Cause his work is never done That's one thing about a coal miner That you women don't understand One thing about a coal miner You women don't understand Seems like you want to mistreat him Cause he is a coal mining man That was Brownie McGee and before that it was Alice Gerard and both songs were called Coal Miner Blues And that's it for this week folks Keep on picking and have a good week Well, that's our show for this week Thanks for being with us We'll be here next week at this time If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.